Okay, we got a union opening. Oh, I have one. Okay. This is not a question. We were prepared this time. Yeah, except for our beer. That's right. Yeah. It, that slipped by the wayside. <laughs> That's all right. We'll bring beer next episode. This is not a question. Okay. It is more of a commentary. I have discovered some new news that I need to correct because I've brought up this on the podcast before and it turns out I was wrong. Oh, I'm Which never happened. <laughs> so this is an exclusive. What is this to news? Um, the news is baby metal is not a genre. Uh. It's a band. Huh. Can it also be a genre though? I feel like it should be. I feel like it is. That's, but that's it's how technically would... a band. It's a J-pop band. I'm going to Google it. Called Baby Metal. It's three adorable singers as they often are pull up the video karate karate yeah we need to we need to give some commentary on this we're gonna watch a grammarly ad first i don't want grammarly okay now we can skip it that's terrifying what the hell (laughs) just wait just wait I love their outfits. No, their outfits are just fire. I want that. This is going to get me into J-pop. It just might. I've avoided this genre. This actually video is pretty tight. This is... Why do they look 12, though? I think they were like 14 when they recorded this. Oh, this is 2016. Yeah, so they're like 16 or 7. I don't know. They were in their teens, so. I guess we should describe this for those who are listening at home. Or not. (laughs) There's three adorable J-pop singers. And they dance with gent beats on top and they're like fighting some kind of japanese demon guy yes which plot twist will be them i think okay this is catchy dude i'm not gonna lie to you i listen to this while running at the gym this is going on my my long run playlist it's really good and then they have a song called give me chocolate that's also pretty good why do i feel like i've heard that one it's their most popular song Okay, we so that's we that's won't baby let that metal. be the whole. I'm 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 here for it. I am too. So like, I guess there's like this whole genre that's rising up. <laughs> the what? top comment is when you like anime and heavy metal, but don't have time for both. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's appropriate. I can't tell if I should be headbanging or saying ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so like, there's this whole genre of like, it's technically called kawaii metal, which is cute metal, kawaii. Kawaii. Thank you. Got, you you got to do it with a little peace sign. Well, I'd, I'd imagine so. So it's called cute metal, but it's not baby metal. Baby metal. So for everybody who takes tabs on like metal names, because that's a whole thing that I'm not going to get into, like breaking down categories of metal. Baby metal is a band. It is not a genre. Technically, the genre is technically called Kawaii metal or otherwise known as cute metal. Interesting. Also, the girls are hella young. They oh, yeah, are they're now, super young. This is two years. Oh. Well, now they're like 20. 
yeah 21 but when they were recording most of their stuff they were like 14 yeah they were 18 16 and 16 there yeah but that was four years ago this describes them as they're genial on the surface but will bite your head off and swallow it whole once the guitars and drums begin to pummel because <laughs> <laughs> in their chorus it's that anime like style da, 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 da. Yeah. Like and then all of a sudden it's like oh like this really good gent that's noise. how i want to be described I'm genial on the surface, but will bite your head <laughs> off and swallow it whole. I think you described every Aries that's ever existed. <laughs> um, on that note, I'm Bethan. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Da da da. Still no reviews because it's been a whole. 40 minutes since our last <laughs> intro why get on that why haven't people left a review in 40 minutes that we've been recording get on that it's like you can't hear us right now or something um we had talked about discussing the taylor swift documentary at one point did we, we? don't have to i don't remember i it. haven't watched it yet it is worth a watch well you should watch it and okay. we'll talk about it next time that will be my homework because it's it's real good that and the jonas brothers documentary we can i'll watch it before we do our special guest interview okay and then we can so add that it. i can technically have it in women's there we go the i feel I like i keep wanting to say women's health month but that's not that's correct not it. women's history month watch that one and the jonas brothers one because they're both good and they're both nice. interestingly related i have a lot of thoughts on it uh we'll talk about them later so let's get into our Women's History Month Part 2. I usually tell you guys why I chose who I chose. So let's talk about why I chose this person this time. You're so methodical. I was driving and I was driving to the Desrock show actually. And I like to listen to podcasts when I'm driving because they keep you, you know, focused. Yeah. And there's a podcast that I, I don't want to tell you what podcast it is because the whole point of the podcast is that you don't know who the podcast is about. Mm-hmm. But this podcast was about Joni Mitchell, who I really knew nothing about. And like her, the story of the, of the podcast sucked me in. And I was like, wait, wait, what? When they <laughs> finished. So we'll talk about it. Um, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know much about her before, mm-hmm. but I have mad respect for her now. So we're going to talk about Joni Mitchell. Sounds good. So she was born Roberta Joan Anderson. Ooh, that's, Ooh. Yeah. that's way off from Joni. On November 7th, 1943, in Fort McLeod, Alberta, Canada. Hmm. Got a Canadian here. Her mother is a teacher, and her father was in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was a flight lieutenant who instructed new pilots. So for the first 10 years of her life, she moved around a lot. Yeah. They lived on various military bases in Western Canada. Uh Partly because they moved around a lot, but partly because she was who she was. She hated school. Her main interest in life was painting. She didn't care about any other subject in school. She just wanted to paint. Good for her. At age nine, she contracted polio. Oh. And was hospitalized for like three months. Wow. Um, What year is this? This would have been 43. So was there a vaccine by It then? would have been 52-ish, 1952. Okay. Got it. Uh, I don't I don't know without Googling when the polio vaccine, but I mean, it was treatable, but like yeah. those three months weren't fun. And no. that's something that like it impacted her the rest of her life because she was alone in the hospital a lot of time. Like her parents would have to leave her to go work. Wow. To 
pay for her medical bills. Yeah. Do you have to pay medical bills in Canada in 1953? I don't think universal health care is a thing yet. Okay. So good to pay for her medical bills. But um, that same year, when she was nine years old, she just started smoking. Casual. It never stopped. Oh, jeez. So uh, her parents weren't watching her very well. It's the only re- thing I yeah. came up with. Because why would you let your child who almost died from polio... Yeah smoke here's some cigarettes which to be fair it was the 50s and no one knew how dangerous it was yeah but you still don't want your nine-year-old smoke yeah at age 11 they finally settled down a little bit in the city of saskatoon which is very canadian <laughs> which she considers her hometown um she never felt connected to a place before then she still responded really badly to school she was very much a free thinker her teachers didn't know what to do with her because it was a very structured school system Respect. and she didn't fit into it. Uh, but one unconventional teacher did kind of break through to her and taught her about poetry and showed her how to write poetry and got her into writing as well as art. That's a good teacher. Um, she actually later dedicated her first album to him. Oh, which is adorable in grade 12, because this is Canada. She drops out of school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one saw that coming. She did later finish her degree, but she spent all of her newfound free time hanging out in downtown Saskatoon with a rowdy set, as they're <laughs> described. Rowdy hooligans. And she hung out with them for a while, but decided that hanging out with them was really bad for her and she was going to end up a criminal if she hung out with them. Smart. So she dropped them. And at this time in the world, this is the, the mid-60s-ish, country music became really, really big and started to eclipse rock music on the charts for like the first time ever. And so she decided she wanted to play guitar. She's a creative person. She can teach herself. <laughs> her mother did not approve of learning her the guitar because it had hillbilly associations. <laughs> <laughs> so her mom said, you can play the ukulele, but you can't play the guitar. But she eventually learned how to play yeah. guitar. That's the, the ukulele <laughs> is the gateway drug, if you will, to guitar. It is. But one thing that's interesting about her guitar playing for the rest of her life is because she had polio, her left hand was really, really weak. Mm-hmm. So she would experiment with alternate alternate tunings for her guitar to compensate for oh, that's the, cool. the fact that she couldn't hold down the the strings as well as like yeah. a normal guitar player. And then she she used those to write her songs later, which makes her songs, I want to say almost incredibly difficult to duplicate. Cause it's mm-hmm. kind of something that only she knew how to do. Right. And like, you can mimic it, but I don't think anyone else could write in her style because she would just like make up a new tuning for the guitar. Yeah. Um, in 1962, she had her first paid performance. She didn't really think it was going to go anywhere cause art was still her main passion. So she, she played on the side to kind of make some money, but was her main focus was taking art classes at community college. She ended up doing a year in art college, which is pretty cool, mm-hmm. but she didn't like that art college prioritized technical skill over creativity. Yeah. So she dropped out of that too. Good for her. So because she's no longer in school and she doesn't have a job or a high school degree, yeah, she spends all her time playing gigs as a folk musician around her college and at a local hotel that just had like one of those singers in the lobby type thing. Mm -hmm. And she, she took a job that paid $15 a week 
in a coffee house that call, was called the Depression Coffee House. <laughs> and what she, a great name. She described the job as singing long, tragic songs in a minor key. <laughs> <laughs> At the Depression Coffee House. Uh, uh, that's no, no, no. That's where all the fours go. The Depression Coffee the House. The Depression Coffee House. I'm, I'm just impressed that in 1962-ish, someone named the, the Depression Coffee House. I love that. Uh, in 1964, when she was 20, she told her mother that she was going to be a folk singer in Toronto. So she left Western Canada for the first time in her life. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, and headed east. She, it took a three day train ride to get there because Canada's wow. freaking huge. And so she spent that time writing her first song ever. Took her all three days. However, in late 1964, she gets pregnant by her ex-boyfriend. Okay. And we're going to talk about this later, but for now, all I need to know is that following February, she gives birth to a baby girl. She's not able to provide for the baby. She doesn't have a stable job. She mm-hmm. doesn't have a man uh, because it's 1965. You had to have a man to keep your baby. Yeah. So she puts it up, puts her baby, Kelly Dale Anderson, up for adoption, which she never talked about for years after. Like, wow. Very few people knew, like her parents knew, her roommate at the time knew, um, and like the, the lady who adopted the baby knew, and that was pretty much it. Wow. That's crazy. In that following April, so she has a baby in February, mm-hmm. hides for a couple months. In April, she leaves Canada for the first time in her life. She travels with a guy named Charles Scott Mitchell, he goes by Chuck, to the United States, and the two play music together. They're dating, they're having lots of sex. Sure. They're writing a lot of songs. Um, they get married very shortly after. Okay. It, so they, they leave Canada and kind of just meet in April. They get married in June. As you can imagine, yeah. this ends very well. Yeah. But they spent a couple years playing the, the club circuit in Detroit, which to me doesn't seem like a hopping place for folk music. Not for folk music. Yeah. They were they were a folk duo. Yeah. I don't know if that's the spot for folk. But that's where he, he insisted they were going to make it big. Hmm. She didn't really have a say in this. Um, but she started to get more popular than him. And she started getting Uh-oh. more booked more than him. So I got divorced a year later. What a baby. Yeah, he... What a little baby. He was not the best Good person. riddance. That's what I have to say. Yeah. And I'll talk about him and some other dick things he did later. But um, goodbye, Peace. Chuck. <laughs> That'd be a good song name. Goodbye, Chuck. It's, it has to be a song. <laughs> Uh, so she continues playing by herself. She's like supporting herself and paying her apartment rent. I think she has a roommate at this point, but she's yep. playing clubs and just making her making a name for herself in Detroit. And she eventually meets a guy named David Crosby, who back to the star is born moment mm-hmm. is like, this girl has something special. Wait, from Crosby, Stills and Nash? Mm-hmm. Wikipedia did not make that connection. Wait, where are they? Detroit. Are they still in Detroit? He's, he finds her in Detroit, but he immediately... Because he's from New York. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Okay. Yeah. He's just hanging out in Detroit and finds her and is like, I like her. So he immediately flies her out to LA. 
Okay. Which is cool because he has a lot of connections. He's friends with Elliot Roberts, who would become her manager. Mm-hmm. And Elliot's friends with David Geffen, who later goes on to make Geffen Records. But at the time, oh, wow. he just has a lot of connections. So he gets her signed with Reprise Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crosby was the one who convinced Reprise, the record label, to let her record her album acoustically without any kind of overdubs or any kind of mm-hmm. weird shit that was happening at the time. Like right. there, he, he knew that her talent was in her guitar playing and her voice and he didn't want anything else bogging it down, which smart props to him. It actually earned him a producer credit on the album, which dropped in March, 1968. And an interesting thing about this album is it goes by two names. No one really knows which one's right. Cause it kind of got dropped under both. Some call it Joni Mitchell. Some call it Song to a Seagull. Hmm. It can be found both ways. She went on a tour to promote this album, which, you know, worked the way tours work. It got people excited for her second album, Mm -hmm. which was an LP called Clouds that she released in the following April. Cool thing about her covers is both were designed and painted by her since she has... That's really cool. All this art skill that she didn't get to I was gonna wonder about that because she has like it's one that has a song parking lot on it I think it's blue maybe yeah it's the really cool I was wondering if she she's it. if she didn't design it I think she designed all of hers I can't back that up if she didn't she would have had a very strong yeah say in what it was so she has these two LPs out um the following year in March 1970 clouds her you know second lp just gets her her first grammy award casually for best folk performance which that's awesome probably not to knock it probably not was not a competitive category but she definitely stood out in that category which is nice because the following month she drops her third album called ladies of the canyon which the, her first two were very acoustic folk um but ladies of the canyon leans more towards pop and rock it has overdubs it has percussion Mm -hmm. has backing vocals it has a lot of songs that feature a piano she actually wrote most of them on the piano which was different because the others are written on guitar yeah um and this is where she like finds her signature sound is in ladies of the canyon it blew up on the radio and became her first gold album um she was having so much success but just decided to stop touring for a year to write and paint which you do you yeah but she she was such a great performer she was still without touring and without doing any shows in 1970 was still voted top female performer by uh (laughs) melody maker which is basically the uk's rolling stone that's awesome during this time she obviously was doing art but she wrote what would be her breakthrough album the one that made her famous made her a household name called blue mm-hmm. which dropped in, ni- in june 1971 it was an instant success critically and commercially which will come to what inspired this album later i'm not going to talk about it in this section but it is a very very raw personal album uh she says when she describes the album I have on occasion sacrificed myself and my own emotional makeup singing. I'm selfish. I'm sad. Uh, we all suffer for our loneliness, but at the time of blue pop stars never admitted that they were sad. Like, wow. Yeah. She was one of the first people to write a, an album that like talked about feelings other than like that's true. Having sex and doing drugs. 
yeah. or just being happy. Like it's, it, it's actually a really depressing album. I couldn't finish it because I was like, this is, this is making me bummed. <sighs> I need something happier. So she finally decides that she's going to stop from her stage break and touring break mm. and go back out. But she, she does a cool thing with this tour to promote blue instead of just like playing the songs from blue that were super popular. She just uses it to test out songs. She'll just be like, Hey, this is a song I wrote this morning. Y'all want to hear it? That's and so really she cool. plays it. And if they like it, then it stays. If they don't, she tweaks it or she throws it out. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to test music. Wish more people would do that. But, <clears throat> um, so that her fifth album is made up of those songs. She's about to release a whole bunch of albums really fast. I'm going to touch on a lot of them. We're yeah. not going to go into them. She released Court and Spark, which is only worth noting because she experiments with jazz and jazz fusion. It went to number one hmm. on a very niche album chart. But well, I'm sure the jazz fusion top 20. Yeah, it did pretty well. She she wanted to use that album, though, to break from her folk sound, which no one really explained why she wanted to do that. She just kind of wanted to reinvent herself. Yeah, switch it up a little bit. Um, I'm not sure that jazz pop fusion was the way to go, but she does hire her first backing band ever called LA Express. They tour with her for the next year or so. They get like crazy good reviews. They were the hot show to go to in summer of 1974. Uh, And then she just releases a whole bunch of albums, which I'm going to skip because it's kind of like Stevie. Yeah, it's just... They make an album, they make an album, they make an album. Yeah. You got to highlight the importance. But the important thing to note during this time is that she worked with a bassist and sound engineer to record a lot of these, who she married. This marriage works out a whole lot better than her first one. They're married for 12 years. They do eventually divorce, but... Hey, 12 years is a good run. It's better than one year. Yeah. Bass players don't really get jealous because they're the bass player, so... He was her sound engineer, too. Yeah. Um, also worth noting, she continues to experiment. So you got the jazz album, you got the rock album, you got the synth album. Like mm-hmm. she's not, sorry, she's not afraid to, to play around with things. Yeah. She's not sticking in her genre. And she keeps saying like, I don't want to be the folk artist that I was. But in 1994, she returns to her roots with a folk album called Turbulent Indigo. <laughs> I like that name. Interesting a follow-up to blue you got blue you got mm-hmm. turbulent indigo you got a lot more feelings and she writes this because she gets divorced from larry klein Aww. so she's probably got a lot of you know feelings yeah and people didn't couldn't relate to her other albums her experimental ones but they could relate to this one yeah some of the songs on this are sex kills <laughs> sunny sunday borderline and the magdalene laundries which on top of like just expressing her feelings from her divorce, actually have some pretty relevant social commentary. So it won two Grammy Awards, including Best Pop Album. It introduced her whole like her whole library of work to younger audiences because it had been, yeah. I want to say, ten years. No, when did Blue come out? Let me scroll. Blue came 1971? out in nineteen. Yes. 1971 so this is 20 years later yeah so like a whole new generation of people find out who she is 
1996, I love this, she released a hits collection like every artist does. Yes. But she also released it with a second album called Misses, which is the songs that she felt were underappreciated from her career. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, Two years after that, so 1998, she releases her final original new work called Taming the Tiger. She goes on a co-headlining tour with Bob Dylan and Van Morrison to promote this. That'd be a good tour. It would be a good tour, but I feel like she could have stood on her own, but you know, and let us, let us not forget the woman has smoked since she was nine years old. So around this part around this point in her life, her voice changes. Yeah. I'll do it. She denies has anything to do with smoking. (laughs) She says, um, well, she's, so she would be singing her older songs that she wrote when she was you know, 20 and she'd go to hit a higher note and there was nothing there. And her voice was sounding a lot huskier, a lot lower. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> she's at the time being described by journalists as one of the world's last great smokers because she's been smoking for 50 years of her life. Yeah. And she says that it's, it's not due to the smoking. It's just due to the fact that she had polio. She had vocal nodules and a compressed uh-huh. larynx, which yes, those things will change your voice. But smoking will definitely change your voice since you're nine. Yeah. Um, she, yeah, she just keeps denying it. There's a famous interview in 2004 where she says that my terrible habits have nothing to do with my limited range. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, but, but they do. Yeah. Uh, her next two albums don't have any new songs and we'll kind of find out why they were only recorded to fulfill contractual obligation. She was not into the music scene at this point. Like she was ready to be done. Yeah. Uh, she couldn't sing the way she used to. She just didn't want to make music anymore. Uh, the two albums are called both sides now and travelogue. And at the time she said, you know, travelogue is my last album. I am done. She, when it came out, she interviewed with Rolling Stone and said that she, the music industry as right at the time was a cesspool. She did not like the record industry. She wanted to just quit and control her own destiny and maybe release her own music over the internet. She was a pioneer. (laughs) Yes, she was. She thought ahead. Uh, She would no longer tour or give concerts. She rarely makes public appearances except for to speak on environmental issues. She divides her property between her home in Los Angeles and then a home in Canada. She says, LA is my workplace. British Columbia is my heartbeat. And I really like that. Yeah, that's nice. She spends a lot of time painting nowadays, which she does not sell, which I appreciate because I feel like she could very easily sell it based on who she is. Yeah. And only displays it on very rare occasions with like close friends. Um, in 2010, she got a lot of flack because she called out Bob Dylan for being a fake and a plagiarist <laughs> because apparently they were working on something together and like yeah. he took her lyrics and didn't credit uh, her yeah. or something. So there's a, there's some bad beef between Bob Dylan and Jody Mitchell. <clears throat> Sorry, Joni Mitchell. And yeah, so she's pretty much disappeared off the face of the planet. Like our like buddy, a Billy Squire like situation. Billy Squire. She'll make appearances sometimes. Um, she has come out with the fact that she has more Jellens syndrome. And oh, that sucks. wants to leave, or she left 
one of her reasons for leaving the music industry was to, I don't know what I'm saying. She has Morgellons syndrome. So I mm-hmm. saw that and I went, what the hell is Morgellons syndrome? Yeah. So I Googled it. Morgellons is the informal name of a self-diagnosed, scientifically unsubstantiated skin condition. Individuals claiming to have Morgellons typically exhibit sores, which they believe contain some kind of fibrous material. What? So this went down like some kind of side rabbit hole that had nothing to do with her. Fiber material? So basically what happens is it's a psychosomatic dermatological condition. So these people think they have sores, so they pick at their skin, (gasps) give themselves sores, and then they think they have fibers in them, but really the fibers are just the fibers in their clothes that have gotten into the open wounds. Yeah. That's how I felt. And I'm like trying to describe it to Zach and I'm like, isn't this gross? He's like, what are you talking about? So wait, is it... So is Morgellons like an, is it the brain thing? It's a brain thing. It's the brain saying you have sores. Yes. So, so you then you pick, at, pick at you. Oh God. And then you pick at them Ugh. so much that they're like, Ugh. it's a sore. And then you put on a sweater or something Ugh. and then sweater fibers get in it. And then you think that your body is growing these fibers. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. So she's That's disgusting. Her, her like life goal now is to give credibility to people that have Morgellons, which I get as a serious condition but it should probably be treated by a psychiatrist and not by a dermatologist. Yes. Uh, In 2015, she had a brain aneurysm, which is really sad and required her to undergo a lot of physical therapy and take place in like extreme rehab. And then last note before we get into the whole lost daughter story. Yeah, that's what I'm excited about. Is um, her tapes, all her originals were part of the 2008 Universal Fire. (sighs) Another one bites the dust. Yes. Okay. That sucks. Okay. So let's talk about the lost daughter. Now that you heard her whole story, because it's the real the real meat of this story. So this is what the podcast was on that I listened to. And let's go back to the fact that she is I think she was twenty one at the time. Mm-hmm. She's an unwed mother, ex boyfriend, peaced out. He just yeah. they she didn't even bother telling him she was pregnant because she knew that he was a piece of garbage. Yeah. Smart. And so she is just starting out in her career. And she has this baby. And the way that the podcast told it is she was in the hospital. They wouldn't even let her hold her newborn baby because they didn't want her to get an attachment. There's a social worker in the room that's basically like, you don't have any money. You should give your baby up. And she's like, well, I could I could try. And mm-hmm. they pretty much force her to sign papers putting the baby in foster care. Wow. So the whole time she's married to what's-his-face, um, Chuck. Yeah. They're in Detroit. She's trying to scrape enough money to get the baby back. She asks him, like, hey, if we get married, will you help me get the baby back? He says, oh, yeah, sure, honey, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Six months later, they're visiting the baby in foster care when they're back in Canada. And he's like, basically, it comes out that he's like, I don't want kids. That's why their marriage falls apart, because he wasn't doing anything. When the baby's like, I think, 18 months she visits her for the last time. She still has no money because she's, you know, a singer songwriter in Detroit and the same, it's not the same social worker, but a social worker is like, you know, giving her up for adoption is the best thing you can do. And at the time, cause it's the sixties and things are weird. It has to be a closed adoption mm-hmm. to where Joni can never contact the baby again. 
Wow. And the baby can't search her out. Wow. And I'm like. That's so sad. So she spends her whole life like longing for this baby. And that's what Blue is about. No one knew it at the time. But like. Wow. She was so depressed that she had to give this baby up. Like she really. She didn't have an option because the social system didn't give her an option because of the way things were. So what happens when you're a super successful multimillionaire mm-hmm. is you hide secret messages in her songs. So a lot of her songs are about longing and they come across as like longing for a lover or longing for, you know, a misconnection, but they're all about her daughter, wow. which is super cool. Um, and in 1993, a roommate from when she was in art school who knew that she was pregnant sold the story of the adoption to a tabloid magazine of course great friends that we have um and so her publicist was like you know what are you gonna do about it and she goes well i guess it's time to come clean and the laws have changed so much with adoptions and closed adoptions and stuff that she basically just like said let's let's talk about it let's publish a story and so she was able to be reunited with her daughter um, in 1993, they met for the first time. Wow. Or ni- sorry, in 1997, it took like five years to find yeah. it. Turns out her daughter has been looking for her the whole time too. Wow. Cause her parents at least told her she was adopted. Um, and as soon as she was reunited with her daughter, she never wanted to songwrite again. She felt like all of it was leading up to her search for her lost daughter and her life was fulfilled. Like what um, a beautiful story all of her songs came out of that heartbreak and her inability to take care of her. And once she was reunited, they've been like inseparable ever since. Wow. How old was she in 97? She was, or 97. Because she was born in what, 1960? She was born in 43. No, not Joni, the daughter. Oh, the daughter. She was born... She was born in 65. So she was 30. She's in her 30s. Wow. What a beautiful story. Yeah. I mean, I would never encourage someone to stop writing. But in that case, I'm like, that makes sense. Yeah. All literally all of her songs came out of like just feeling like she was gypped from her baby because the second the baby was born, they're like, you're not wed mother. You're unfit. Wow. You need to give your baby up for adoption. There's plenty of better families who can take care of it. Wow. And they just made her feel like she was a piece of shit because yeah. she was an unmarried woman. She wasn't woman. good enough. Yeah. So that was the story that really got me interested. Yeah. Uh, we'll also talk about her legacy a little bit. So she wrote a lot of her songs on piano once she got you know established. But almost every song that she plays on the guitar uses non-standard tuning. She write, has written in 50 different tunings, wow. which she just calls Joni's weird chords. <laughs> um, but when she would play, she would have to, I mean, normal, normally people have multiple guitars or multiple tunings. She would have to have like multiple guitars. Yeah, no, absolutely. Cause you would have one song that was tuned one way. And that was the only song in her whole catalog that was tuned that way. So it made her live shows very interesting. Um, but it does give a lot of flexibility because she doesn't play by the rules, which yeah. is totally cool. Badass. Uh, in 2003, she was named the 72nd greatest guitarist of all time and was the highest ranked woman on the list. Good for you, Joni. Her music has inspired many, many female listeners. Um, around the, t- I mean, the time that she was famous, it was stereotypical male rock stars. Like mm-hmm. you had your, your Bob Dylan's and your, your Fleetwood Max, and she was 
very much herself and very much, you know, she talked about feelings and talked about being sad and having this longing. And I mean, people didn't know why she was talking about it, but she built like something that her female fans could latch onto. Um, she also owns all of her own publishing rights for her music. Go for her. So go Joni. Some people that she's influenced include Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, Ellie Goulding, Harry Styles, Corinne Bailey Ray, Pink Floyd's David Gilmore. And Madonna says that Joni Mitchell was the first female artist that really spoke to her as a teenager. Her songs have been covered like, I think Wikipedia said 3,000 times. Oh, I believe it. But some, some great highlights include Amy Grant, Counting Crows, <laughs> George Michael, Annie Lennox, Bjork, Prince did a cover of one of her songs. Oh, really? And Kanye West and Dr. Dre have sampled her vocals in their music. Okay. Which is a total just clash of genres. She has a lot of songs written about her. Um, Our House by Graham Nash refers to Graham Nash's two-year affair with Mitchell when they were touring as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh. She, she helped them write Woodstock. Okay. Um, so they, they were very, very close. Led Zeppelin's Going to California was said to be written about Robert Plant and Jimmy Page's infatuation with Joni Mitchell. Hmm. Um, Robert Plant often says Joni when he's performing it live. Uh, in the Specifically after the line, to find a queen without a king, they say she plays a guitar and cries and sings. He'll like sneak a Joni in there. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and Weird, but cool. We, yeah, weird, but cool. And that is all I have on Joni Mitchell. That's incredible. What what a really awesome story. Like, way, way to knock it out of the park with that one. Like, good choice for episode two. Thanks. For international. Women's. I basically knew the, the, the one I listened to didn't really talk about her career at all. It talked about the highlights. Um, but wow, that was the baby story that got me. I was like that is not fair no 100 percent not fair but if she had been allowed to keep the baby she probably wouldn't have made music. she wouldn't have made it so yeah it just goes to show i just closed the outro notes oh beer don't have a beer still drinking water but i will recommend d9 brewing company is defying gravity oh the green beer it is green i drank it at a local restaurant with some friends l- last week I did not pay attention to the fact that it had a 14% alcohol <laughs> content. So I'm drinking this beer. I'm eating dinner. And I I mean, I can get drunk off one beer if I'm it's not true. eating. But I was feeling really gone. And I looked at Zach and I was like, did I really not eat that much today? He was like, I feel this beer. So we get home and I go to sleep because I'm drunk. Yeah. And I wake up the next morning and I look it up on untapped and it was like 14% AV. Uh. And I was like, that explains that a will lot. Do it. So it is green. It's, you know, named after Defying Gravity from Wicked, which is the musical where I got engaged. Um, I've heard mixed reviews. I put it on my Instagram story and like three people replied and said, I thought that tastes like dish soap, but I liked it. <laughs> it was the only sour on the menu and I didn't know it was green when I got it. Nice.
Thank you for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You also can leave us a review. We definitely want to hear from you. Even if it's a bad review, hey, you left a review. Pretty neat, huh? Special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff and Lauren Page Photography for our cover art. We also want to give a special shout out to Backline Coffee for always fueling us with coffee and Speaker Tree Records. Go pick up some Joni Mitchell Records. I'm sure there's some great ones there. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. We're also on Twitter at She Will Rock the Letter U Pod. You also can follow us individually at Beth Ann Tarpley or at Leah Elizabeth J. We're also taking emails. You got a special memory of with Joni Mitchell? We want to hear about it. And you can email us at She Will Rock You Podcast at gmail.com. Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs.